I would think that in uh, recent uh, weeks, there's not been a word that's been more often sort of the, the scientific and environmental news than plastics. Right? You hear all kinds of things about plastics and the huge garbage patch in the Pacific Ocean and how we have to avoid using plastics, etc. <clears throat> well, I've talked about that before and for sure we'll talk about it again. But I think it's also very interesting to take a look at the real story of plastics, where they come from, what the origin is. 
And what do we really mean by, by plastics? It's a huge area of uh, production, research, scientific uh, interest. And I want to give you a little bit of background to the history here. You know, because uh, we often say that if you don't know where you've been, you won't know where you're going. I think history is, is very important. Uh, unfortunately, it isn't much taught in schools these days. I'm always flabbergasted, you know, when uh, I speak to my students and, you know, these are the, the 1921 year old category, how little they know about history and uh, you know, how they, they have no idea when things happened. You know, if, if uh, I would pose them the question, when do you think the first plastics were made? And I told them first century, 10th century, 18th century, that uh, you'd, you'd get random answers. Unfortunate. Anyway, uh, I know when I first got interested in plastics, and that was when I collected comics, and I became aware of Plastic Man. Uh, I wish I still had those comics that I collected. Uh, unfortunately, I, I don't. I mean, I, I know that I had some pretty good Superman comics, but in those days, you never thought about that. You never thought about collecting it. You, you actually got comics to read them. And of course, they became all, you know, torn and all, and then you ended up uh, throwing them out. No one in those days thought of, uh, you know, let, let's put this uh, uh, virgin plastic in a, a comic in a plastic bag and keep it for 30 years to see what happens. I mean, you never thought of stuff like that. Anyway, the first time that Plastic Man appeared in a comic was in 1941. And it was in uh, police comics. And it was very interesting. <clears throat> Originally, he was a criminal. And he fell into a vat of acid, unnamed, of course. And uh, it turned him into a crime fighter. It made him see the light. And not only that, it also gave him these powers whereby he could extend his body. He became elastic. Of course, he became plastic man. Now, in the 1940s, that was very, very early to be talking about uh, plastics. In the 1930s uh, is when nylon was first introduced. So this was a capitalization on really the first plastic that people uh, heard about. But my next encounter with plastics was at the New York World's Fair in uh, 1964. Uh, that was just a, a great World's Fair. Anybody who was there? Yeah. So, you know, if you remember it, it was really interesting. I, I, I remember many things about it, including the Pavilion of the Future, where they had things that never happened. They, they you know, foresaw a future that never existed, or so far, they saw flying cars by the year 2000, right? And, uh, of course, they not, did not foresee anything like, uh, like the uh, smartphones. What they did have as, as a phone of the future was a phone with a small screen in it where you could see the person that you were talking to on the, on the telephone. But anyway, the uh, pavilion that interested me most at the World's Fair was the DuPont Pavilion. And uh, it was the wonderful world of chemistry, as you can see. This was 1964. And the word chemistry in those days was not associated with toxin or poison. 
uh, people reveled in the, the wonders that, that plastics and chemicals brought to them in, 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 in those days. And inside was a show with dancing molecules. They sang and they danced about all the wonderful things that plastics could do. And the theater itself, everything in it was made of some novel plastic that the DuPont company was producing. There were nylon curtains, there were acrylic carpets, there was polyester cushions. Um, but not everything turned out to be successful. Most of the plastics that were introduced there did turn out to be successful, but, but uh, not all. But anyway, they danced and they sang. There's nothing to match the thousand things you do with plastics. There's nothing to beat their skill and versatility. That's why we can tell you we are all enthusiastic about the very significant truly magnificent happy plastics family. Uh, and it was a very, very good show. But one product that DuPont introduced there in 1964 were Corfam shoes. This did not turn out to be a success. Why? Because they were too good. The Corfam shoes were made of, of a polyurethane, which is synthetic leather, and it would not scuff. It would last forever. Well, it turned out that people, especially women, did not want shoes that lasted forever, right? So while it was a, a big scientific advance, it actually turned out to be a marketing disaster because it, it was just not something that, that people wanted. They wanted new shoes all, all the time. And the, the, the idea that you could you know, buy shoes that would last for years and years, which had, you know, seemed to be appealing, just wasn't appealing to, to the public. So Corfam shoes essentially have disappeared, although you can still buy some antique versions, I, I guess uh, we, we'd call them, and uh, they're very good sh shoes. Also, uh, Disney got into the plastics business and uh, they had the Monsanto House of the Future. And again, this was uh, before Monsanto was looked at as the devil. And Monsanto uh, originally was a chemical company. It was much later that, that they ventured into agricultural products and started to produce genetic modified uh, 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 crops. Uh, and uh, everything in this Monsanto house of the future was made of plastic, everything. And this, of course, was a, a huge development at that time because these materials were better than the existing materials. You know, they, they were better than uh, wood. Uh, they were uh, uh, more, uh, they, you could clean them easier, they would last longer, uh, etc. So plastics were riding high. And it really all culminated in the movie, The Graduate. If you remember the classic scene from that, young Benjamin, uh, just graduates from uh, college. His parents organize a party for him to celebrate his graduation. And at that party, he's cornered by a friend of the family. And uh, he says to him, I have just one thing to tell you. And because Benjamin doesn't know what he's going to do as a career. And he whispers into his ear, plastics. And indeed, in those days, the 1960s, that was good advice. 
plastics was a, a growing and burgeoning industry. Uh, people were thrilled with uh, all of the wonderful plastic uh, commodities that uh, they, they could get. I mean, in, in uh, those days, the, the fact that you could get, you know, disposable plates and disposable cutlery, that was a selling point, uh, not, not like uh, today. So 1967 with the graduate really marked the heyday of, of, um, of plastics. And uh, I mean, it's still, I think it's one of the uh, best movies of, of all time. I'm always surprised, again, you know, sometimes in, in lectures, I will bring up these things to, to my students. And uh, I'm always stunned about how little they know, you know, even about uh, pop culture of, of, you know, which is relatively recent, the 1960s. I mean, no, they weren't alive then, but, you know, it's not the prehistoric era. So when I ask, you know, how many of you have seen The Graduate? I have a sprinkling of hands that's, uh, that go up, you know, and uh, then I, I tell them, go on and watch this, this uh, movie. And then you said, well, when was it? So I say, well, 1967. No, they don't, they don't watch. If it's older than two or three years and you can't stream it, they're not interested in, 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 in watching it. So anyway, um, in those days, plastics were flying high. Today, of course, <laughs> things are very different. Right, say no to uh, to plastics. Now, of course, there there is some legitimacy to that. We know that there are problems with plastics, and of course, we've spoken about this about the tremendous amount of plastics that get thrown out, uh, problems with recycling, uh, etc. But to uh, you know, to address people who say that they want to live a plastic-free life, this is sheer lunacy. <laughs> you you could not build cars or airplanes or, or electronic equipment without plastics. So plastics are part and parcel of our life. But yes, we do have to, to uh, deal with them properly. And, you know, throwing them out callously, of course, is something that we have to get away from. But let's start with explaining what the word plastic means because that term was actually around uh, long before uh, the plastics that we think about as, uh, as plastics. Indeed, as early as the 1600s, you know, 17th century, uh, the term plastic uh, was used. And of course, this was long before they knew anything about chemistry, right? So it just referred to substances that you could mold and that would then hold their shape. So this really is what plastics are. They're materials that can be molded or extruded into various objects, but the key thing is that then they will hold that particular shape. So by this um, uh, rather simple definition, clay would be regarded as a plastic material, right? Because you can form it into an object, you can then fire it and it will retain its, its shape. So that was the original meaning of the word plastic. There were other such materials. For example, pitch is also a plastic material. Pitch is what stays behind when you heat uh, wood. And it's, it's, uh, it's a tar. It's a very ugly 
looking thing. It's a very complex mixture of many compounds, but it will harden into a firm material. And it can be, before it hardens, it can be shaped. Now, this is a historic item. It goes back to the days of the Bible. If you remember the story of Noah, uh, how did he waterproof the ark? Well, the Bible will tell you that he used pitch. Burned wood, collected the pitch that's left behind, smeared it on the wood to provide this waterproof uh, uh, layer. And, um, you know, this is something, of course, that, that the Bible actually gets right. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is a material that really can be used to waterproof uh, an ark. As far as the ark goes, of course, it would have had to be a pretty massive ark to have two of every existing species. I mean, the calculations were made that, that uh, uh, the ark would have been have to be roughly the size of the island of Montreal to, to uh, house two of every species that were, uh, were alive. But uh, I mean, of course, these stories are not meant to be taken uh, uh, literally, uh, although obviously some do. But anyway, the, the, the pitch is an unbelievably complex mixture. <laughs> this, this, even it's a chemist's nightmare even. But indeed it is a material that can be molded and will keep in shape. But most plastics that, that we talk about today are composed of what we call polymers, which are made of individual molecules that are joined together in a chain. Now, the first time that this idea of polymer was introduced was in the 18th century by uh, Jacob Berzelius, who was a, a, a giant in chemical history, a Swedish chemist. And uh, he introduced this word polymer, but at that time, it had a totally different meaning from the meaning that it has today. Because in those days, they did not have any idea of molecular structure. The only thing that they were able to do was to carry out a chemical analysis so they could determine that a substance was made of carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, etc., and they would be able to determine the ratio of these elements. But they didn't know anything about how atoms were joined together to make molecules. So, to Berzelius, the concept was that two substances that were similar in the sense that, that they contained the same atoms, but different numbers of these atoms, judging that one would therefore be larger than the other, this is where he introduced the term polymer. So it was a totally different idea from what we use the word polymer as today. Today, Polymers are molecules that are made up of individual units that we call monomers, joined together very much like the links in, in a chain. And most plastics are polymers, and their properties depend on what those individual molecules are that are joined together. Polymers exist in nature, so they are not all man-made not by a, a, a long stretch. Nature is full of all kinds of, of polymers. Here are some of them. Silk, wool, fur, horn, wood, cotton, flax, skins, hide, 
All of these are naturally occurring polymers. Now, in the case of things like, like uh, wood and cotton and, and, and flax, uh, the basic units there are cellulose, which in turn is made up of glucose molecules joined together in a chain, whereas silk and, and fur and horn are proteins made of amino acids joined together. But what all of these have in common is that they're all long molecules made up of individual units. And humans have been making use of, of polymers in this sense forever. I mean, obviously, <laughs> making fabrics out of cotton or out of flax, or um, making, for example, a knife out of horn. This, is, this goes back hundreds of years. The handle of this uh, knife is, is made of horn. And horn can actually be shaped. When you heat up horn, uh, it becomes soft. You can mold it into shapes and you cool it down and it will retain that, that shape. So there are some very interesting polymers. Uh, these are little insects that live on a tree in Asia and they produce a resin. And that resin is known as shellac. And you can melt shellac, make it into different forms, and when it dries and cools down, that shape will be retained. The first disc records were made of shellac. Now this, uh, of course, goes back more than more than a hundred uh, hundred years, and shellac is still used today. Shellac is used, of course, to to coat furniture to uh, uh, protect it, uh, but. Of course, the today our synthetic plastics uh, are uh, superior to shellac, so we can uh, certainly design much, much better protective materials than, uh, than shellac. But the first uh, records were indeed made of, of shellac. But one of the most interesting natural polymers is one that is exuded by a tree, the Palaquium gutta tree, which is native to Malaysia, secretes this uh, latex, which we know as gutta percha. And gutta percha, when it dries, uh, will retain the shape into which it has been molded when it was uh, uh, still moist. And one of the first uh, items, historical items, that was made of gutta percha were the original golf balls. And uh, obviously gutta percha is pretty hard, and that's why it was very useful for golf balls. Today, uh, golf balls are made of various kinds of synthetic materials, various kinds of plastics, and of course they fly much further than the old uh, gutta percha balls. They're aerodynamically designed, they're lighter, etc. But there's still one major use of gutta percha, and I suspect some of you have experienced it. Anyone know what it is? Yes, it is what is used in root canals. This is what they fill the roots with. In a root canal, what they do is they empty out the root because it's been uh, diseased. And that's what they do when they take those little screws and extract all the refuse in there. And then they fill it with gutta percha. And um, 
the gutta percha is warm when they put it in, and when it cools down, it hardens, and it totally fills up the, the space. So here is a, a natural uh, polymer that is used today, and it is better for this particular purpose than any synthetic uh, material. It also has a characteristic smell, and when you get a root canal uh, done, if you can take your mind off of what it's costing you, you, you can smell the uh, gutta percha. Very similar to gutta percha is the latex that exudes from the Hevia brasiliensis tree. And this is what we commonly know as rubber. Now they are very similar, even chemically, but their properties do differ. For example, natural rubber would not be useful for root canals. But what is really interesting here is that their molecular structures are almost identical, uh, but slight differences in the way the atoms are joined together make the difference in the properties. So the reason that gutta percha differs from natural rubber is because the monomers, the isoprene molecules, are joined together in somewhat of a different fashion in, in, in the chain. And that makes for the difference. And this is, of course, at the very heart of chemistry, that everything depends on, on molecular structure. Well, long before anyone knew anything about molecular structure, uh, rubber was used in uh, South America, natives were very aware of this, and they even made primitive galoshes, you're going to see. So they would take the uh, exudate of the tree and warm it up so it becomes malleable, put their feet into it, let it cool down, and take it off like you take off a sock. Uh, pretty, pretty inventive. Now, the name rubber is also interesting. That was actually coined by the brilliant English chemist Joseph Priestley, who is best known for his discovery of, of oxygen. And he was the first one to find a very specific use for rubber. In those days, of course, they wrote mostly with pencils. And he found that the mark of a pencil could be rubbed out, and hence the name rubber, because rubber was very good at, at it's an abrasive material, so it could remove the uh, marks from, from the surface. But the biggest breakthrough in the use of rubber uh, came from Charles Goodyear. Charles Goodyear uh, was a, an absolutely fascinating uh, guy. He didn't have any formal education, he was a re religious man, and somehow he came to the conclusion that, that God had given him the mission to improve the properties of rubber. Uh, the trouble with rubber was that um, it was very, very sticky. And as soon as you warmed it up a little, it became like, like glue. He wanted to find a way that you could use rubber so that it would retain its stretchy properties under different conditions. So he tried all kinds of things, mixing it with, with everything you think of. He would mix natural rubber with cream cheese, with different kinds of soups, anything that he could get his hands on. None of it worked. And then one day, he just happened to spill some of his rubber on the stove, 
where he had also spilled some sulfur because he had been experimenting with sulfur as well. And it turned out that this was the key to making vulcanized rubber. He coined that term. Vulcan was the Roman god of fire. And because it was the fire that made the rubber react with the sulfur, he called it vulcanized rubber. He didn't understand the chemistry that was going on. Now, of course, we know that the long rubber molecules, which could easily slide past each other, are secured in place with the addition of sulfur because sulfur joins the uh, rubber molecules together. So you get one complex network. And uh, vulcanized rubber found all kinds of uses. Uh, he patented it. And there is the original patent, as you can see, 1844 uh, rubber. And uh, uh, pretty soon, the world heard about it. And they heard about it in 1851 at the wonderful Crystal Palace exhibit in uh, London. This was uh, really the world's first uh, fair. And uh, there were all kinds of exhibits of industrial equipment. Uh, England mostly exhibited all their machinery, tried to convince the world that they were far ahead in terms of industry than anyone else. Uh, the Crystal Palace was really, a, the building itself was a magnificent building. And uh, it was mostly made of glass. That was a very big deal back then in the, 18, uh, in the 1850s. Uh, it was eventually, uh, after the exhibit, it was disassembled and taken to another area in London and rebuilt. And that area still today is known as Crystal Palace. It no longer, the palace no longer is there in the 1930s, it burned down. Uh, but uh, the area is still called Crystal Palace and there's a football team called Crystal Palace in, 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 in London. But anyway, inside the Crystal Palace, was an exhibit that Goodyear had mounted to show all the things that you could make out of rubber. And this pontoon boat, for example, uh, was at that time amazing. You could blow it up. You know, this could be stored on ships as, uh, you know, for in, in emergencies. And not only that, there were rubber dice that he exhibited, uh, rubber jewelry of all kinds. Today, of course, we would not bat an eye at this. But in those days, I mean, this, this was really novel. Because up to then, jewelry was you know, made from gemstones and from precious metals. And you wouldn't think that people would attach any importance to something that today we look on as junk, right? But in those days, that wasn't looked on as junk. This was a wonderful, novel uh, material. Balls could also be made of rubber. And in fact, Goodyear made the first ever football. It was used, uh, as you can see, uh, in 1863. And uh, it still exists. It's in a museum. But of course, to us here, there's something uh, that is still made of vulcanized rubber that is very close to our hearts, which is the hockey puck. So it is, uh, it is made uh, the same way that, that uh, Goodyear made it back, back then. It's made by taking rubber, heating it up with, uh, with sulfur. Uh, but of course, there are many, many other uses of rubber, uh, including rubber tires. Now, these days, the rubber tires are not made totally of vulcanized rubber. 
because there are some synthetic rubbers also that can be made uh, made today. Uh, there's, of course, tremendous amount of research that has gone into rubber uh, tires. Uh, but as you know, they do wear. There's no question about that rubber tires wear. You ever thought about where all that rubber that hits the road goes? Right? Now, when you were talking, we're talking about billions of tires in use every year. Right? What happens to them? This is a huge problem. First of all, you know, uh, recycling is not so easy because there are many different materials made of, of it, but it can be ground up and mixed with asphalt and used on roads and all that. But a big concern is this, because every time that that tire turns and hits the, the pavement, you lose a little bit of rubber. Now those particles are so small that you can't even see them, but they're nasty because you can inhale them. And uh, there's no question that people who live around high traffic areas have a higher incidence of respiratory problems. This is well documented. And that's from the inhalation of all this tiny particulate uh, matter. Um, however, aside from rubber, I, I think the most useful uh, material uh, most abundant biopolymer in the world is cellulose. Cellulose is, is what plants are, are made of, but chemically speaking, it's a polymer of glucose. That's what cellulose is. And the world's first plastic industries were based on modifying cellulose. <clears throat> on doing something with it to make it into a more useful material. The purest form of cellulose is cotton. Cotton is, is just a long molecule made of long molecules, individual glucose units joined together. And the modern plastics industry really can be traced back to 1833 and a Frenchman by the name of Henri Braconnot, chemist, as you can see. And uh, he was studying cotton. Now, the first thing that you do when you study a molecule, a substance that you know nothing about, you try to break it down into simpler components. So one way to do that is you digest it with acids. Acids have the ability to break substances down. And that's what he was doing. He took cotton and to try to find out what cotton actually was made of, he tried to break it down. He cooked it up with nitric acid and he found that he got this gel material left behind, which he called xyloidine. Today, we know what it actually was. It was nitrocellulose. The nitric acid had reacted with the cotton to make it into a totally different material. Uh, nitro groups were attached to the, uh, to the cotton. And this is what uh, is purified nitrocellulose uh, look like. And um, he was the first one to note that this substance was extremely flammable. We have his records about that. 
But he never did anything with this. This was just an interesting observation. Uh, he was much more interested in pharmacy. He actually did some interesting work in that, but he did note this. However, it was a Swiss chem chemist by the Friedrich Schönbein who brought this to the attention of the world in a rather interesting way. He discovered that when you take cotton and you cook it up with nitric acid and sulfuric acid as well, you get a material that is highly flammable that came to be called gun cotton. How did this happen? Well, as the story goes, he did some of his experiments at home in his wife's kitchen, which in those days wasn't all that unusual. And he was working with nitric and sulfuric acid, which he spilled on the floor. And being a proper white-fearing man, uh, Frau Schoenbein was not home at the time, he figured he better clean this up as soon as he could. So he wanted to uh, do it quickly. He grabbed his wife's cotton apron, which was hanging on the wall, and he wiped up this mess on the floor. But then he had a wet apron on his hands, and you, he knew that she would not be pleased to come home to this mucked up apron. So he hung it up in front of the fireplace to dry. And the next thing he saw was that apron burst into flame and disappeared, but without leaving any soot. There was no smoke, it just seemed to vanish. Of course, he didn't understand at the time exactly what the chemistry was, but uh, he kept uh, copious notes of this. This was an epic moment. I will recreate it for you. Apron, fireplace. Can I say that again? <laughs> they always do. Whether you're talking to kindergarten kids or PhDs, they want to see things burn. Okay, so just watch. And the important thing to notice is that there's no smoke. This burns efficiently and completely to what? To carbon dioxide and water, two gases which go off uh, into the air. So that was a pretty interesting discovery, but what, what do you do with this discovery? Well, Schembein found that when he took his gun cotton and he mixed it into uh, a solvent, ether and alcohol, it dissolved to form this viscous solution that he called collodion. Now, the interesting thing about this was that when you spill this on a surface and you allow the solvent to evaporate, what was left behind was a plastic, a film. And this was the first time that anyone really had made a synthetic plastic. Now, it was by manipulating a natural polymer. As I told you, cotton is a natural polymer of, 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 of cellulose. Anyway, Schumbein was quite excited about this. And he wrote to Michael Faraday, 
who was at that time the ranking scientist in, in England and probably the greatest scientist in the history of the world. Uh, I, there's no single person who has had as much an impact on the world as Michael Faraday because he invented the uh, electric generator and the electric motor. And without those two, our life would be nowhere. Uh, but besides that, he also isolated a number of elements. Uh, he uh, developed electrolysis, broke down water into hydrogen oxygen. Absolutely brilliant man, the, the, the greatest impact in the history of the world. So anyway, uh, Schumbein wrote to him excitedly. You know, he was able to shape his cellulose nitrate material to all sorts of things and forms. You know, it's been said that, that uh, science is built on standing on the shoulders of people who have gone before you. So when this idea was introduced, others thought about, you know, how could you apply this? And in Boston, John Parker, a physician, found a way to use this, to dab it onto wounds, allow the solvent to evaporate, and you had an invisible dressing. Quite a breakthrough. This still exists today. You can buy flexible uh, collodion. It had all kinds of other uses. In England, Frederick Archer, who is really regarded as one of the fathers of photography, found that you could take silver salts, which are the key to photography, those are the ones that change uh, color when exposed to light, they could be dissolved in collodion the collodion then could be smeared onto a glass plate, and that's how the first photographs were produced. The interesting thing about that is that all of that had to be done in the darkness, right? Because the silver salts exposed to, to light would immediately you know, turn the whole thing black. So photographers in those days had to carry around their darkroom. That's what those photographic vans were. They were, they were the dark room in which they would make the collodion plates and uh, put them in a black box. And when they were ready to take a picture, they took out the collodion plate, put it into the camera and took the picture. Now the pictures that were taken with these collodion films were amazing. Unbelievable detail. Right? That, of course, was President Teddy Roosevelt. Today, uh, you can still buy collodion in a pharmacy, I told you. But one of the most interesting uses today for collodion is in special effects. Because when you put it on the skin, it pulls at the skin and it kind of wrinkles it and it looks like you've been cut, you know, so as you can see uh, here, and then you, you can paint it. So this is one of the interesting uses of, uh, of collodion. But there's more. In England, Alexander Parks read about Schumbein's work because Schumbein published it. So he described how he was making his uh, nitrocellulose, gun cotton, as, as, as they called it, uh, and incidentally, today, uh, gun cotton is the, is the uh, material from which smokeless gunpowder is made. This is the gunpowder that is commonly used today. 
it's ground, ground up into fine particles and uh, it burns extremely well. That, of course, is what causes the explosion on a bullet. And uh, it's very effective. It all goes back to Shambhine. But anyway, Alexander Parks uh, read about this and uh, he started playing around with collodion and he mixed it together with vegetable oil. Now, undoubtedly, you know, he tried mixing all kinds of other things, but he found that this made the collodion into a very flexible material that was easily moldable. And when uh, it uh, hardened, it would retain its shape. And he made a number of materials from what he called parkasine in all modesty, right? And here they are. Now remember, this is, we're, we're looking here middle 1800s, right? These were totally novel materials. I mean, today, of course, we don't bat an eye at this kind of stuff, but to, in the middle 1800s, to make something that never existed before, you know, that wasn't carved out of stones or out of wood or whatever, uh, that could be molded, this was a huge, huge breakthrough. And Parks exhibited it. This time at the 1862 London International Exhibition, which was also a huge deal. This was championed by Prince Albert. Prince Albert was Queen Victoria's husband, known as the Prince Consort, right? Uh, and he had a great love for science. He was a huge promoter of science, a huge promoter also of, of English industry, which also was, you know, uh, featured, uh, featured here. Uh, but he basically planned this uh, 1862 uh, exhibit. And Parks showed his various materials uh, here. And for this, he received a medal. This is the uh, citation for uh, Parkesine, which at that time was seen as, you know, a wonderful new uh, material. And just to show how good this material was, Parks decided he was going to make a replica of the medal that he got in Parkesine. The medal that he got was a bronze medal, but he took a mold of that bronze medal and out of that mold, he made a copy of the medal in Parkesine. There it is. This is Prince Albert. This is, of course, a historic relic. You can find it in the uh, Science Museum in London. And the English, of course, revere Alexander Parks, uh, calling him the inventor of the first plastic. Uh, but, you know, to, that's always a treacherous thing to say that someone was the first to do something, because it rarely is the case like that. It's, it's, it's an evolution. And, you know, as I, I, I showed you, he would not have done what he did without Schumbein having done what he did. Uh, so, you know, you always build on, on what was uh, going on before. Um, Alexander uh, Park's business was then taken over by Daniel Spill, uh, who renamed uh, Parkesine as Xylonite. And he had some interesting ideas about how to use it. Uh, look at the cuffs and the collar. Because in those days, gentlemen uh, did not change their shirts all the time. 
They just changed the cuffs and the color. And xylonite was a new material that uh, could be easily washed. You could just rinse it in water and it looked like you were wearing you know, clean clothes all the time, unless someone got too close to you. Uh, but you know, there were all kinds of objects made out of, uh, out of xylonite and the original factory uh, was this one. This is the xylonite factory in, uh, in London. Now in America, we think that it was actually John Wesley Hyatt who produced the first, uh, first plastic. And this is also an interesting story. In those days, billiards, very, very popular game. Of course, this was before TV, before movies, you know, so these things are very popular. But the billiard balls were made of ivory, and ivory was in short supply. So the company offered a $10,000 prize to anyone who could come up with a material that mimicked the properties of ivory. Ivory, of course, comes from elephants, and it was in short supply because elephants were being uh, hunted. So John Wesley Hyatt decided that he would go for this prize. And he experimented with collodion, just like Parks had experimented with it. And Parks had found that when he mixed it with vegetable oil, it made a moldable material. Well, John Wesley Hyatt found that when he mixed it with camphor, it also produced a moldable material for which he coined the word celluloid. And indeed, he did make a billiard ball out of celluloid. For some reason, which history books are unable to reveal, he never did get the $10,000 uh, prize. Uh, but he did make a billiard ball. Of course, it was a problematic billiard ball. Why? Because it was made of celluloid, which was made of cellulose nitrate, which of course is, is highly flammable. So what happened was that if the balls banged together too vigorously, uh, they would spark and burst into flame. And here's a very interesting note from, uh, from that era. Consequently, a lighted cigar applied would at once result in a serious flame, and occasionally the violent contact of the balls would produce a mild explosion like a percussion gum cap. We had a letter from Billiard Saloon proprietor in Colorado mentioning this fact and saying he did not care so much about it, but that instantly every man in the room pulled a gun. <laughs> Just like today. Um, John Wesley Hyatt founded the, uh, what he called the Albany Billiard uh, Ball Company, and it became a, a huge uh, uh, company, producing, as you can see, balls by the truckload. And you can still find some of these, They're, they are now uh, collector's uh, items. And uh, in the US, John Wesley Hyatt is regarded as the uh, inventor of the first uh, uh, plastic. And uh, he then went on to making more than just billiard balls. Uh, the first celluloid company factory was in Newark, New Jersey. And uh, they produced some beautiful items out of celluloid. Combs were, were a big deal and, uh, and brushes and they looked like ivory. 
that was the you know the, the big marketing uh, feature and obviously it was much much cheaper than ivory and uh, just like with xylonite came the idea of using celluloid for waterproof uh, collars and here is one of those and you could just easily rinse it and then wear it again and uh, everything else was covered up so you looked uh, totally clean there was a unfortunately believe it or not a racist component to this because here's one of the ads for celluloid because in those days uh, laundries were run by the chinese uh, in in the united states and the celluloid ads focused on basically getting rid of the Chinese laundries because now you could just rinse under, uh, under the water. Some of the, uh, the items though were really, really uh, beautiful as you can see. Uh, and uh, celluloid dice and look at that doll. Uh, of course, the big drawback of celluloid was that it was flammable, so you had to be very careful with it. But there were all kinds of items made out of uh, uh, celluloid. And one of the most interesting ones were the first artificial teeth. You had to be careful not to drink something too hot, or your mouth would catch on fire. Uh, but the, uh, the bigger problem with it was that celluloid uh, would soften with, with heat. So it didn't work out that well, but at that time there was nothing, uh, nothing uh, better. Um, in 1914, uh, John Wesley Hyatt, because his contribution was awarded the Perkin Medal, which is the most significant honor that is given in the United States to industrial chemists. And in interestingly enough, today there's an award called the John Wesley Hyatt Award which is um, presented to uh, plastics engineers. But there was a lot of, of controversy about who really held the rights to this. Was it Parks or Daniel Spill in, in, in England or John Wesley Hyatt? And there were all kinds of lawsuits going back and forth uh, uh, over this. And finally, a judge decided that uh, it could not be awarded, the patent uh, could not be awarded to anyone because basically they all had made some sort of uh, uh, contribution. So the final decision, as you can see, is that both uh, Hyatt and, and uh, uh, Spill in England were allowed to go on and produce it. A huge contribution was made by George Eastman. George Eastman was aware of celluloid. And uh, he, of course, was uh, uh, the founder of the Kodak company, which, which made film. Well, at first, the, the film was uh, made on, on, on paper. Uh, and then uh, came celluloid. And this was a huge breakthrough in making a photographic film because it was flexible. And George Eastman is usually given credit for introduction of celluloid film. And, you know, the whole movie industry is called the celluloid industry. But just as I said that you are always building on the work of others, it turns out that Hannibal Goodwin had actually filed a patent for celluloid film before Eastman. 
and there were legal wrangles about this as well. He contested Eastman's patent and uh, eventually awarded uh, $5 million, which is a huge amount in those days. But anyway, celluloid gave birth, of course, to the movie industry. Uh, it was flexible uh, and it uh, could be impregnated with the uh, silver crystals. The first film ever made on celluloid was made by Thomas Edison. It was called The Sneeze. It was only 10 seconds long. And uh, the film captured Frank Ott, one of his workers, sneezing. But this resulted in one of the few mistakes that Edison made. He decided that the way to capitalize on this was with a machine that he invented called the kinetoscope, in which the film had to be hand cranked and you would look down through the viewer and see the moving image. And Edison's idea was that people would have to buy the kinetoscope and then they would buy different films and that there would be kinetoscope parlors, which for a short time there were, where you'd pay and you'd watch these short films. But this was one of the few mistakes that he made because the Lumiere brothers in France said, why does this have to be individual? Why not let everyone see this at the same time by projecting a light through the film? And thus they invented the moving pictures. Uh, the problem with the first celluloid uh, film industry was the flammability. And this is something you know, that has clouded that business ever since. There were uh, fires in, in theaters. And you may know that in Montreal, up to the 1960s, children under the age of 16 were not allowed into movies because there had been a, a terrible fire in the 1940s where I forget how many, some 50 children died in a, in a movie theater uh, fire. Um, this problem was solved in the 1930s by cellulose acetate, so-called safety film, another polymer uh, replaced celluloid. And today, celluloid, aside from being a collector's item, is used in only one commercial substance. Interestingly enough, it is the ping pong ball. No synthetic material has surpassed celluloid in uh, terms of making a ping pong ball. But of course, it has the usual problem. It's highly flammable. And we always get a good reaction in class when you take a ping pong ball and burn it in front of the students. They love to see things burn. Um, Count Hilaire de Chardonnay in France had another idea. He thought, why not take this material and exude it through small holes to make a fiber out of it, which he did. And this was the first man-made fiber. And uh, it was again based on cellulose. He had first converted into cellulose nitrate. He exuded that through what we call a spinneret, it's like a shower head, small holes, and it dripped into a vat of acid and that regenerated the cellulose and 
it made it into uh, a fiber. This was exhibited in 1889 at another World's Fair, which was the one in Paris, and this is the World's Fair for which the Eiffel Tower was built. And uh, it had a, a, a huge uh, uh, visitorship, and uh, they came to view uh, the famous Chardonnay silk. <clears throat> Chardonnay started commercial production, as you can see, a pretty large industry, but it, <coughs> it didn't last very long. And the reason it didn't last very long was <coughs> the flammability. And people took to calling this, <coughs> some of you will understand that, highly flammable. Today, mother-in-law silk doesn't exist anymore. It uh, has been surpassed by uh, nylon and polyester fiber, etc. But at that time, it was really a huge discovery. It was called artificial silk because it really looked like silk. It felt like silk. Uh, it was, uh, you know, a wonder material. Next breakthrough came in uh, 1901. And again, came about in an interesting way. Jacques Brandenburger was a chemist who was dining in a restaurant and wine spilled on a tablecloth. And of course, it was very difficult to unstain it. So he wondered, could there be some material that could be used to protect this, uh, this fabric? Well, he knew that in England, viscose had been created, again from cellulose. Viscose was a material where they took cellulose, reacted it with a material called carbon disulfide. That made a new substance. And when that was retreated with acid, the original glucose polymer came back, but it had different properties. This was very viscous, so it was called viscose. And it could be extruded through the spinnerets into thin fibers. Well, Brandenburg knew about this, and he wondered whether or not this material could also be used to cover fabric, because this was you know, waterproof and could be easily uh, wiped. So he, in fact, invented a machine which could take this viscose and extrude it into very, very thin film. And thus was born cellophane which uh, found immediate application. Cigarette packs, some of you may remember that, they were wrapped in, uh, in, in cellophane. Today, uh, it is still around. It is used very often as gift wrapping, these candy bags. Um, it's still uh, a useful material. The trouble with making cellophane is that you have to use carbon disulfide. So it all starts with taking glucose, reacting with carbon disulfide. You get a new material called xanthate, and then you react that with acid to get back the original cellulose, but this time it has different properties. But the use of carbon disulfide is, uh, is a problem. And they already noted this. You can see in the late 1800s uh, about various kinds of toxic reactions uh, caused by inhaling uh, carbon disulfide. 
In England, the biggest manufacturer of these uh, uh, fibers was the Courtauld uh, company. And uh, as you can see, here's the, uh, the fibers being made and then cellophane being made in the same company. Uh, the trouble was exposure to the fumes of carbon disulfide. And the books have been written about this. The lethal history of viscose rayon. Rayon is what this material was called because it looked like the rays of the sun were shining on it. Uh, but uh, there were a lot of, of, of uh, respiratory problems caused by the inhaling of carbon disulfide. Today, uh, of course, rayon is still made, but now they know how to handle it with proper ventilation systems, etc. Another interesting application, 1933, by Elder, a ship surgeon, who found that cellophane was an excellent material for covering wounds which it, it is. And they had these emergency field dressings, you know, that were made of, uh, of cellophane. And then another clever idea was to make a tape out of it. And thus was born cellulose tape, which of course turned out to be very useful. And then a great invention by John Borden was the tape uh, dispenser. And today, of course, we still have scotch tape. So you can see the history of all of this stuff is, is really fascinating. And it, it shows you, you know, the evolution. And I mean, you know, we've just concentrated here on, on uh, uh, essentially the simple polymers that were made by modification of naturally occurring silos. That's one area. And of course, there are many other areas of plastics, which maybe we'll talk about uh, uh, another time, because a whole new era began with the introduction of, of nylon. Okay, just one other thing I want to mention to you guys is that on May 11th, we're going to be screening a movie. Uh, it's an excellent movie. I watched mm -hmm. it. It's called Virulent. And it tells the whole story of what is, is very well described as the vaccine war which is really what is going on out there between you know, people who promote vaccines scientifically and the anti-vaxxers and everything that is involved, you know, the money that is involved and, and all the controversies and the personalities. It's a great film. And we're going to, we uh, are actually bringing in the director and the producer of the movie uh, from California. And uh, after, after the film, we're going to have a discussion with them with questions also from from the public and uh, we do require registration it doesn't cost you anything but we need to know how many people are coming so that's the website uh, and when you go to the website you'll see the blue there registration you click on that and uh, so then we have some idea of uh, how many people are coming all right, so that's uh, one little aspect of the story of, of plastics, but it gives you, you know, an, an idea of the history and the complexity, and uh, uh, you know, I think it's uh, it's really unfortunate that people look on plastics as if they were some sort of you know devilish material, uh, because our life would just not be the same without. Them. Okay, uh, any. Questions? 
Of course not, because this was not about that. <laughs> so, I, we did a whole we did a whole uh, uh, lecture on that a few weeks ago, the plastic bags. It's plastic, yeah, but I mean, there's no, aside from ping pong balls, there's no celluloid produced today. No. Cellophane, sure, yeah. Now, they, you, any, any of the plastic films, you cannot recycle. No. They gum up the machinery. So don't put your, any, you know, once you rip up your saran wrap or whatever, don't put that in the recycling. Plastic bags cannot be recycled except in very special recycling facilities. Now in California, they, where they still use some plastic bags, they collect them. They have bins where you put in your plastic bags and those are taken to a special facility. But uh, here, it's the same story as with the, the plastic film. It comes up the machinery. So in, uh, the, the plastic recycling is a very complex business because especially these days, the plastics are not made of one material. Uh, you know, you, you look at the, the something like, like uh, you know, like a um, milk container. Okay, it will have a thin layer of one type of plastic on the surface, another layer, you know, on the inside. Separating those is, is virtually impossible. Hard plastics is what you can recycle. What, what really, there's no question should be recycled are the beverage bottles. Okay, all the soft drink bottles, which of course you should not be buying in the first place. The water bottles, which you should not be buying in the first place. But those can be recycled. Then the, the containers, the yogurt containers, all of those, the hard plastics, that, that can be recycled. Um, yes, but uh, even that's, not, uh, that's a problem too, because it depends where. Uh, for example, you know, you, you'll see for styrofoam, uh, which is number six, all that means is that in theory, that can be recycled. But whether it is recycled or not is a different story. Depends where? Not here. It depends on where the recycling facility is. Because, you know, you have to take into account all kinds of things. You have to transport the material to the recycling factory, which of course uses energy. Now, the problem with uh, uh, styrofoam is that it's very light and it takes up a lot of space so that, that you know, a truckload of styrofoam, <laughs> if you're taking very little for a lot of effort. So it doesn't make sense unless there is a very nearby facility. But in general, polystyrene styrofoam is, is not, uh, not recycled. The ones that, that really are, are important to recycle are the hard plastic uh, materials. Yes, yogurt container for sure. Yeah. 
No, those are made of different layers. Anything that is made of different layers of material, it's because it's impossible to separate separate those. Yeah. Uh, the Edison kinetoscopes were around, I'd, I'd say, from 1890 to 1910, something like that. How come I remember looking into Oh, it, it's, uh, oh, that, that's very possible. I mean, when I say 1890 to 1910 is when they were produced. Okay. Oh, but uh, I'm sure they're, you know, they're around today, uh, and, and certainly in, in uh, museums and no, it, it, that's very possible. Uh, in fact, they you know uh, they would have had those in amusement parks, you know, and and yeah. I mean, I I would think that you know they they would be quite valuable now if you could uh, as a collector's item, but. Yeah, that was Edison's mistake. He didn't make money. But, you know, I mean, Edison, uh, I mean, no question, he, you know, the great inventor, maybe the greatest single inventor, you know, ever. But uh, Edison was not really interested in the science. He was interested in making money. And he, he said himself that, that if, if it didn't make money, he was not interested in, in producing it. But what, what Edison was really very, very good at was taking existing discoveries and making them uh, practical. You know, I, I think I probably told you before about, you know, the light bulb story. I mean, you know, you bring up Edison and everyone says light bulb. Well, Edison did not invent the light bulb, far from it. Light bulbs were around 50 years before Edison. What he did was to make a practical light bulb that worked for a long time through sheer effort by trying literally hundreds of different materials to use as the filament in the, in the light bulb. But that's, that was his, his thing, is to take existing substance, existing inventions and make them better. The one invention that really was his from scratch was the phonograph. No, that's never happened. You 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 have to have a flame to set fire to it. Yeah, it's a it's also somewhat of a racist story. Uh, because the uh, Scots, of course, supposedly are known for their frugality, and the uh, original tape could be reused. So, because you'd save money by using it, it's called the Scotch tape. When? No, no. 3M. Yeah based on the idea that the Scots had this reputation for being cheap. <laughs> yeah. Do you say that the milk cartons that are lax have to be recycled? Yeah. Multiple 
Yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> what. Well, it depends also, you know, what you call research. What they do with some of these things, you know, when these uh, people throw everything into the recycling bin, and and essentially they've they've given up trying to give instructions on, on what to do because people, you know, they don't follow it. So what happens is that all of this goes to the sorting facility. And that's a very complex business. I mean, there are some machines that do that based on density. Some things will float in another sink, so they separate them all. But then there's all this stuff that's left over, like the milk cartons, okay? Now, that can't really be recycled, but what they do is they compact that, you know, and they use that as fillers for, you know, um, but usually in, in very cheap things, you know. Uh, like um, if you need a weight inside of a, the leg of a furniture or something, they'll, they'll use something like that. But it's not economically, you know, not, not an easy thing to... The milk carton? Yeah, yeah, milk carton really should go in the garbage. Yeah. Yeah. Now you can, the, of course, when you buy the milk in the plastic jug, that goes into the recycling. Those can be easily recycled. What is the disadvantage of reusable containers? There. Yeah, many reusable containers. I mean, that's what Tupperware is, right? I mean, no, Oh, oh, uh, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> well, I mean, certainly the that the problem there is not the container. <laughs> the The problem is the dispensing of the yogurt. You know, uh, because I mean, there would be all kinds of complications with the people touching. You know, and. Uh, but, Not only it would be unsanitary, but you'd have to worry about someone coming and putting something in it, or you know, spitting in it, or uh, it's, uh, that's that's why the you know these uh, <clears throat> self-serve things are always a problem because you don't know what the hell people are going to do. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, that can be done. And the, the, I mean, there was a place, I don't know if it's still there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. does it still exist? There was one on Monkland. Yeah. It's still there? Yeah. 
They dispense? You dispense your own? Okay, thank you.